0: Colin Kaepernick started by sitting when the national anthem played. That evolved into taking a knee during the Star-Spangled Banner. He was protesting police violence and racism. And he was using his huge platform as a famous football player, a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, to make his point.
1: There's people being murdered unjustly and not being held accountable. Cops are getting paid leave for killing people. That's not right. That's not right. By anyone's standards.
0: What he did made a lot of people proud, and it pissed a lot of people off.
2: Not long after that, Kaepernick found himself out of a job when the football season began in 2017. But other players picked up Kaepernick's baton and began kneeling during the national anthem, and since then, The protests and the controversy around them have become maybe the biggest story in American sports.
0: The story's back in the headlines because of the NFL's new policy to penalize teams if their players kneel or sit during the national anthem.
2: If anyone is on the field and is disrespectful to the anthem or the flag, there would be a a fine from the league against the team.
0: That's Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner. So that's on the field. Players can stay off the field during the national anthem if they don't want to stand.
2: And Goodell said the decision was unanimous among NFL team owners. But reports came out saying that this was more of an informal vote. And at least one owner said that he abstained altogether. Here's Roger Goodell again. All 32 clubs want to make sure that during the the moment of the anthem and the flag, That that is a very important moment to all of us as a league, as clubs, uh, personally, and to our country. And that's a a moment that we want to make sure is done in a very respectful fashion.
0: The NFL's TV ratings dropped last season. People blamed the protests, fans, and pundits. But there isn't evidence to support that theory. Nevertheless, President Trump tweeted about it, saying... The American public is fed up with the disrespect the NFL is paying to our country, our flag, and our national anthem. The president seems to like this new NFL policy.
1: I don't think people should be staying in locker rooms, but still, I think it's good. You have to stand proudly for the national anthem. Well, you shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't be there. Maybe you shouldn't be in the country.
2: Some players are already speaking out against these new guidelines. Chris Long, who plays for the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles, tweeted that this policy was, quote, fear of a diminished bottom line. It's also fear of a president turning his base against a corporation. This is not patriotism. Don't get it confused. End quote.
0: And his teammate Malcolm Jenkins said, while I disagree with this decision, I will not let it silence me or stop me from fighting.
2: You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby.
0: And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And on this week's episode, we're talking sports and black political protest.
1: I'm Lewis Moore, associate professor of history at Grand Valley State, where I teach sports history and civil rights.
2: Lou is the author of the book, We Will Win the Day, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Athlete and the Quest for Equality. So I sat down with him to get some more context. So obviously this week the NFL instituted a bunch of sort of vague policies around how players can protest or not protest during the national anthem. And I was curious what you made of the league's policies. It might backfire on them because this is no longer about police brutality, right? It's 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 really about
1: free speech and it's really about controlling black labor. And I think these players are going to realize that that you know, we come from these communities and, 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 you know, you're willing to see us bash our brains in. Let us just give us an opportunity to, to have this platform if we want. And and it's not even clear that they really wanted to take that platform, right? Uh, at the end of the year, only seven players kneel. Mm-hmm. But now it's not about, you know, kneeling against police brutality. Now it's going to be about figuring out a way to show that they're unified for for free speech. And that's going to be tougher for the NFL to fight. It's easy to to fight, you know, people are protesting for police brutality because the naysayers will just point to, The military, they'll point to the American flag and then they'll also point to Chicago and and tell these players to be quiet. Right. You can't do
2: that with free speech. Can you tell us about the politics of black protests, sort of the continuum of the way that black athletes sort of organized and disagree with each other in public?
1: Yeah, I said before the civil rights movement, like where it really starts to kick off, you only have a few athletes getting involved, like a Jackie Robinson. But once the civil rights movement gets going, you'll start to see more Black athletes get involved, and that's because they realize that if these young kids are going to be on the streets and and putting their lives on the lines, then they have to do this too. So someone like heavyweight champion Floyd Patterson at the time was watching the um, sit-in movements on TV, and then everything clicked for him. He said, I have to get involved. And then the next year, he's putting in his contract that you have to desegregate this stadium in Miami if I'm going to have this heavyweight championship fight. In 62, he's going to Mississippi with Jackie Robinson to talk to civil rights leaders. In 63, he's going to Birmingham. Him and Jackie Robinson eventually try to uh, create a housing track that's integrated homes. So it's that type of, you know, the visuals of the civil rights movement, the understanding the risks that these kids are taking that push a lot of these athletes into the movement to be activist athletes.
2: And what kind of pushback are they getting from the public as this is all happening?
1: In the 60s, it really depends. It's individual. Um, I think the person who gets the most pushback is someone like a Bill Russell because he he speaks out a lot.
2: Bill Russell, for those of y'all who don't know, is the legendary center for the Boston Celtics. He's also the first black head coach in American pro sports.
1: From what I've read, if you're simply just saying, like, we need civil rights and you're going to be part of this movement, there's not a lot of pushback from the public because how can you argue that? But then, if you're someone like Bill Russell, who who is not only talking about civil rights, but is also agreeing with someone like a Malcolm X, who is also coming out at the march in Washington and saying it shouldn't have been integrated, then you'll get pushback. Uh, what's interesting, though, where they do get pushback is from Jesse Owens. So there's this pretty um, famous incident in 1963 when Jackie Robinson and Floyd Patterson go to Birmingham and Jesse Owens does an interview and he openly criticizes them, essentially calls them outside agitators. And Jackie Robinson, who who has a column at that time, writes back and says, essentially, look, like, I'm not free until all my people are free.
2: Let's talk about Jesse Owens because he's, you know, an American track star. He runs in the Olympics in Berlin before World War II. And the way that we tell that story now is that he was sort of a symbol of American sort of relative progressiveness on race as compared to Nazi Germany, right? That he ran in front of the, you know, the Nazi leadership and proved that there was no such thing as Aryan superiority. That's the way we tell that story now. But in your book, you sort of talk about the way that Jesse Owens was like a much more complicated figure and in his time was sort of viewed skeptically by other black athletes.
1: Right. So what we do with Black athletes, and and Jesse Owens is is a great example of this, especially those athletes who are Olympic teams, we always use them as examples of, of our democracy at home, understanding that we have Jim Crow at home, but still... Here is this Black guy who grew up in the South as part of the Great Migration movement moving to Cleveland, grows up in the ghettos, but yet he can still be a four-time gold medalist, right? And we say, well, America, there's opportunity. But what, Jesse, what happens to Jesse is he comes home and he faces discrimination all over again. But still, Jesse buys into this narrative that sports is essentially the best thing for Black Americans. And so what he does is... Throughout the civil rights movement, he sets himself up as that person. So if there's an athlete going to protest, he goes after them and says, you know, you, you can't do this. Sports has been good to us. And every time he does that, there's always a pushback, essentially telling Jesse, like, look, man, you came home. You're a superstar. There's segregation. You know, we're not trying to live that type of life. And that happens most famously to him after John Carlos and Tommy Smith
2: raised their fists in the air. John Carlos and Tommy Smith, you almost certainly remember from that iconic photo of them with their gloved fists in the air on the podium at the 1968 Olympics.
1: The Olympic Committee brings Jesse Owens in to talk to the Black athletes, and they essentially shame him, and he leaves with tears in his eyes.
2: One of the stories you tell in your book is the story of Rose Robinson, who sort of took the opposite tack, that in a lot of ways you can sort of see as a template for someone like a Colin Kaepernick, right? Can you tell us a little bit about Rose Robinson? Because she's not somebody that I ever heard about until I read your book.
1: Right. So Rose is a decent athlete. She's a high jumper. Um, I believe her best jump might be around five two five three. She's from Chicago. She's a member, of course, of the Congress of Racial Equality. But as an athlete, once the Cold War kicks off and she understands that the United States government is is using her as a black person, to say something about democracy that's essentially not true, she she pulls away from the system. And so in 1959, when the United States and Soviets agree to have track meets, right, these type of goodwill games to to promote peace, she qualifies to go but refuses to go. And so she says she's not going to allow her country to use her in, in that way. She also, it's noted in the press that during the Pan Am Games in America, she doesn't stand up for the national anthem And then in 1960, she is actually arrested for refusing to pay taxes. And and she goes on a
2: hunger strike. What was the pushback to Rose Robinson when she decided not to stand for the anthem?
1: None that we could see. I'm sure people are upset, but this is just something that's just not covered. One thing I do is go through the black newspapers. Outside of Jet, there's rarely any mention of her as this activist athlete. It's just you know, part of it. She's a woman. And they're just not covering these types of things. But there's no, like, black writer, right, like, really pumping her up like you would do a Jackie Robinson or an Elgin Baylor who boycotts a game that same year.
2: Obviously, professional sports is a much different sort of beast now than it was in the 60s. So can you tell us a little bit about the landscape now for black activist athletes and, like, where Colin Kaepernick and Malcolm Jenkins and Eric Reid sort of fit into that landscape?
1: Yeah, I would say the first thing that's very similar is just that there was a movement before they got involved. So the Black Lives Movement, which we don't see much of publicly anymore. But, you know, that gets people involved, right? Like, how could you not want to be part of something when you see thousands and thousands of people that look like you out on the street protesting for rights? So you'll see someone like a Derrick Rose or LeBron James wearing their I Can't Breathe shirt. You'll see those players from the St. Louis Rams doing the hands up, can't shoot and this is what touches cap. Like it takes him a little bit longer than other athletes, but you know, that the Alton Sterling murder, I believe right after that happens, this is when he starts to kneel. And, and so that. Alton Sterling is the shooting in Louisiana, right? Right. Baton Rouge, I believe that happens a month before cap sits. And, and then he kneels. And cap is not technically revolting from the system at this time, but he's using the system and the game itself to raise a point. And, and the pushback is very similar to what you see with John Carlson and Tommy Smith, which is they protest during the anthem when all eyes are on them. right? And, and it's this magical moment for me, because I love it, where, where they're just essentially saying, like, look, we have USA across our chest, but we're going to tell you what it's like to be black in America. And the blowback, like you wouldn't, you, I guess you would believe, but what I've been doing recently is just going through all these newspapers and and reading not only editorials, but letters to the editors. What were they saying? Oh, gosh. Um, You know how un American is, how unpatriotic it is. and And it's the, you know, the, we're all the same human race. Like, how could you do this? Like, it's ridiculous stuff like that. You know, there's a sports editor in Birmingham who essentially equates them to the KKK. A lot of people are missing the point. Um, Some white folks who do agree with them do it in a way and essentially say, look, I'm not black. This is their thing, and this must be an important issue for them to raise. But the overwhelming majority, there's a lot of people upset because they feel embarrassed, and essentially because it makes Americans have to deal with racism,
2: right? So can we talk about sort of the way the economics, the way that contemporary athletes are compensated, the way that changes the way that people think about whether they should be active? Because one of the things you see a lot is like, oh, well, these are millionaires, right? They shouldn't be complaining.
1: I think that there's, there's a couple of things actually going on. One, you hit on it with this Maritakis. So just, just in general, because they're athletes, right? Uh, and they're black athletes. There's always going to be that argument that if you weren't an athlete, you'd be in the ghetto, you'd be in the jails. And then you add that money element to it. And it becomes essentially like, just shut up and play. You have all this money. How are you going to complain? And we saw this in the 60s. So until Jackie Robinson came around on Muhammad Ali, one of his first criticisms of Ali when Ali comes out against the Vietnam War is that America is this country that allows you to make all this money. America is this country that allows you to speak. So how dare you not you know, go into the military? Now it takes Jackie to come around on this and see you know, the problems of the war and actually what Ali's protesting. And we saw it recently, like with uh, LeBron when he had the inward spray paint on his house. There's a black sports writer, and he's essentially trying to make the point that because of LeBron's money, right, like he's not touched by racism, which is essentially not true. Like, I've put together this quick story map from the early 1900s to today where all these black athletes are dealing with housing discrimination, right? That the most influential black athletes can't buy houses in white neighborhoods. Now, if we move forward with CAP, is is like, you know, the brother has a hundred had a hundred fourteen million dollar contract, and people essentially say, "Well, the number one complaint is you're rich. Like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, you shouldn't be speaking out. You have all this success. You have all this money. You've made it. There's no problem because you've made it." And I think I want to go back to what Jackie said, and and when. Uh, Jesse Owens came at him. And and this is the same thing Cap is saying. is like, I'm not free until all my peoples are free, right?
2: One of the things that's interesting about the Cap situation, as we all know, Colin Kaepernick has not been in the league uh, for the last season, right? Some people who are affiliated with him, Eric Reed, who was a teammate of Colin Kaepernick, who was also kneeling, also does not ha- currently have a contract. And so a lot of people have talked about the fact that this looks like collusion on the part of the NFL. That looks like the NFL is actively trying to keep these athletes who've been outspoken about racial inequality and protesting uh, during the national anthem out of the league. Watching the conversation around Kaepernick for the last year has been about like whether this is actually blackballing or whether he's just not good enough to play in the NFL.
1: One reason why it's hard to talk about race in sports is because what what sports does is... It celebrates this idea of meritocracy and democracy. The best person gets an opportunity, and so a lot of Americans like to rally around that idea, right? That you can come from nothing and rise to the top. And so, you know, someone like a Jack Johnson, born son of slaves, the heavyweight up in the world, right? Mm-hmm. But what's also clear, where I always like to point to, like history as an example, is that we had Negro League baseball, and that had nothing to do with merit. What happens with the Negro Leagues, and there's nothing, you know, written down technically that says it's collusion or anything. It's just that. All the white owners in professional baseball just agree. they call it the gentleman's agreement, not to sign these players. So they don't have to have these conversations. They just know that this is the gentleman's agreement, right? So you're going to keep out a satchel page a Josh Gibson, you know, Oscar Charleston, a cool Papa Bell, you could, all these great players who have gone on to the hall of fame, you're going to keep them out. Mm-hmm. And so in sports, again, we celebrate merit, but that for a lot of black athletes, that's, that's never really been the case.
2: huh? How can we expect for this for the Kaepernick situation to sort of resolve itself?
1: If Cap ever gets a job, I don't know how well he's gonna be able to perform to take out much time off. But in the end, I think Cap will be celebrated. You know, John Carlson, Tommy Smith are are celebrated as heroes, at least celebrated as heroes. A lot of people did not like Jackie Robinson during his playing days and afterwards because he pushed for civil rights. He's celebrated as a hero His his jersey's retired. So I think history will be on Cap's side.
2: Lou Moore is a professor at Grand Valley State University, where he's a professor of African American history. And he's also the author of We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete and The Quest for Equality. Thank you so much, Lou. All right. Thanks for having me.
0: After the break, we're revisiting a conversation with ESPN's Jamel Hill, who was condemned by the White House after she refused to, quote, stick to sports.
2: Stay with us. This week on Latino USA, the story of the only registered Mexican-American Holocaust survivor and how he risked everything to document the horrors he witnessed inside the Berga concentration camp. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This, and I have some very exciting news to share. We are hosting our first ever How I Built This One Day Summit, sponsored by American Express. You'll have a chance to hear from and interact with some of the world's most inspiring entrepreneurs and founders, like Airbnb's Joe Gebbia, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix, John Zimmer of Lyft, and many, many more. We'll have breakout sessions with experts and guides, and the summit will be a chance for you to meet other innovators and builders. The How I Built This summit will take place on October 16th at San Francisco's Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. You can go to npr.org/summit to find out more and to get your tickets. Jean. Shereen, Code Switch.
0: Last year, Jamel Hill was the co-anchor of ESPN's Sports Center, which was a big deal. A black woman was the face of ESPN's flagship show. She's got a different role now. She's a senior correspondent and columnist for ESPN and The Undefeated. And her new piece is headlined, The NFL Shows Who and What It Values with the New Anthem Policy.
2: The opening line and it is, so now we know for certain that the NFL is full of it.
0: <laughs> mm, Jamel does not... Hold her punches. No, she does not. And Gene, you talked to Jamel not long after the White House said she should be fired for calling President Trump a white supremacist. This was Mm -hmm. after his response to a fatal attack by a white nationalist in Charlottesville.
2: One of the things that's been really fascinating to watch over the last year is this suggestion that there should be hard partition between sports and politics. And so, like, this year obviously has been consumed by a lot of stories that are sports and politics at the same time. I guess I'm curious as to how you think ESPN can go about navigating these spaces that are have always been political, but are now like very explicitly so.
3: The only thing different about it now is like it's more divisive, just in our country in general. Mm-hmm. And so that's the thing that makes it hard, because even if you just do you know flat reporting about, say, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, mm-hmm. you're going to get wildly emotional reactions. Right. And we're just reporting the news. We're not even weighing in. We're just telling you what happened or telling you why he's doing it, which is our journalistic responsibility to do is to explain it in context. And so people still get mad. And it's like, all right, but it's just the news it's an event it's it's the biggest story in sports of the year there's no question about it Mm -hmm. like I mean you could even argue the last two years but the biggest story of the year is that and then we would be journalistically irresponsible if we did not discuss it Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I think what we have to do and what I often do I just remind them that politics has been everywhere in sports for so long that you've just come to accept it and didn't even realize it Mm -hmm. you know anytime a team moves anytime a team gets a stadium built those are built largely with taxpayer dollars. Mm-hmm. It has to be voted on, which right. makes it political. And even the association with the NFL, I'll just use them in particular, and the military, that's political. Mm-hmm. Flyovers are political. The anthem is political. Mm-hmm. So it's always been there. So it's funny how people pick and choose when they're okay with politics, being in sports, depend on how they feel about said politics. Mm-hmm. So they're reacting to Colin Kaepernick the way that they are because... They don't believe that the cause that he's chosen to get behind, they don't find any justification for it.
2: So I've been thinking about this a lot, and it seems like the NFL is in a really unique spot among the professional sports. So you have baseball, which has a fan base that is overwhelmingly white. And a little bit older, I think the median age is in the 50s, but his players are mostly white too. You got the NBA on the other hand, which is a league where most of the players are black. More than half of the NBA's TV audience is people of color, right? Nearly half of the NBA's fan base is under the age of 35. So their politics that play out in those sports are a little bit different because they're a little bit more in sync, right? But then you have the NFL, which is, of course, the most popular sport in the country. There was a study that came out earlier this year that said that the NFL's fans tend to skew right of center. So they're Republican voters. So you have this league full of black players and you have this fan base full of white people who are a little bit older and a little bit more conservative kind of In tension, but that tension has always been, it doesn't often get spoken out loud. It seems like watching the protests this fall and the reaction to those protests, that a lot of that reaction was probably overdue. And I'm just curious how you think these protests will resolve themselves.
3: I don't think they will. I don't know if that toothpaste is going back in the tube. And while um, it's interesting that you noted and pointed that out, that like automatic tension just given who the base of fans are versus who the players are Mm -hmm. versus the structure of the NFL from who is ownership and even the way that they're paid, the fact that the the contracts are Are not guaranteed. guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of elements there. A undrafted rookie can become a star, Mm -hmm. and you're hired to be fired. You're there to be replaced. Mm -hmm. And so now that the players have exposed that they're not willing to do that, that they're not willing to just go along with the status quo and that they want a voice and that they want to use their platform for something bigger, then it becomes a problem. And throughout the history of sports and when it comes to sports and race, we've seen this routinely is that whenever black athletes ever jump outside the box of going beyond just being the entertainment of society, it's met with tremendous blowback. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job. See, it's one thing I don't say this, to be casual about the issue because it's very serious. But had Colin Kaepernick put his hands on a woman, he'd be back in the league Mm. because that tale of redemption can be sold. You can't do that with Colin Kaepernick because we're talking about thought. We're talking about how he is as a person and as a man. He's not going to all of a sudden tomorrow say, you know what? Come to think of it, Philando Castile got what he deserved. That's not going to happen. So they can't redeem, quote unquote, Colin Kaepernick. They can't sell that story. And so the owners know that. So he's never going to be palatable for fans.
2: Jamel Hill is the co-host of ESPN Sports Center. She joins us from Bristol, Connecticut. Jamel, thank you so, so much for coming through. I appreciate you.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: All right, y'all, that's our show. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Email us at codeswitch at npr.org. Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed.
0: And sign up for our newsletter. You can do that at npr.org/newsletter/code switch.
2: This episode was produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez and edited by Sammy Yenigun, Steve Drummond, and Leah Donella. Now, shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team: Kat Chow, Adrian Ferrito, Karen Grigsby Bates, Walter Ray Watson. Our intern is Angelo Bautista. I'm Gene Demby,
0: and I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. Bezieo. Peace.